Let's turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. This morning we're going to bring our series, Are We Living in the Last Days to a Close? And I realize there is so much more that could be said about eschatology, about the last days, but with Palm Sunday next Sunday and Easter Sunday the following Sunday, I thought it would be more than appropriate for us to close this series by looking at the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we're going to be reading 1 Thessalonians, and um, I got Dal's permission to do this, so I'm not stepping on his toes, and he'll be bringing us back to 1 Thessalonians in a few weeks to close out that book. But let's read 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 to 18 to begin with. Paul writes this, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them, in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. I can only imagine the way Paul encourages the Thessalonians to expect Jesus' return must have left them with the sense that Jesus is coming back any minute. I mean, listen to how he says, don't, you know, don't grieve about those who have died uh, with the return of Jesus, because when he returns, we who are alive, we who are alive will be caught up with him, with them. We'll talk about that in a minute. But twice he says, we who are alive, we. He doesn't say, hey, uh, you know, those who are alive when Jesus returns. He says, we who are alive. And I can imagine the Thessalonians are just like, he's coming back. He is coming back. That sense, that excitement pulsated in the early church. I mean, it is constant in the New Testament. Paul wrote about the second coming of Jesus 50 times. To put that in context, he wrote about baptism 14 times. They just pulsated with this sense that Jesus is coming back any minute. And they lived with that expectancy. Now Paul says in verse 18, encourage one another with these words. And so they did. But after a while, when Jesus didn't return, and believe, over time, believers began to pass away, those who were alive began to worry that the ones who died had missed out on the return of Jesus Christ. That they were going to miss out on that glorious day that we who are alive are looking forward to. And so that sense that our loved ones are missing out on that beautiful glorious day compounded their sense of grief and loss. 
And it didn't help. Remember, the Thessalonians are pretty new to this Christian thing. It didn't help that in their pagan uh, background, <clears throat> uh, there was no hope after the grave. There was an inscription on a Thessalonian grave that read, After death, no reviving. After the grave, no meeting again. And they saw their loved ones die. And in their grief, they began to struggle with doubt and a sense of hopelessness. Now, Paul doesn't deny their grief, but he adjusts it from hopeless to hopeful. We grieve with hope. I love that about the Bible. Not only grieving loved ones, but when we go through hard times, our hearts can sometimes weep and mourn. And that's okay. But Paul adjusts it to weeping, mourning, struggling with hope. I love that. Verse 13, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who fall asleep or who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Fallen asleep is a euphemism, a Christian euphemism for dying, for death. And Paul brings us back as he's thinking about the second coming of Jesus. He brings us back to the first coming of Jesus. He brings us back to the cross. Jesus died for our sins. And so notice that what he says is God will bring with him those who had fallen asleep, those who had died. He will bring with them. In another passage in 1 Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians, Paul says, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. For the believer, the moment we take our last breath, we are absent from this body, but we are present with the Lord. There's no in-between time. We close our eyes, we breathe our last, and we're with Jesus. Is that good news or what? I mean, come on, folks. That is seriously great news. So he's saying they are with the Lord, and when Jesus comes back, he's going to bring them back with him. Paul goes on in verse 15. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. This, by the way, is the clearest reference in the scriptures to what Christians call the rapture. You've probably heard of it. Paul says the dead will rise up. And here's what Paul is saying. Guys, you don't have to feel sorry for the dead. They're going to get there first. When Jesus returns, the graves will open up for those who died in Christ, and they will rise to be with Jesus first and meet him in the air in resurrection bodies. There's so much that could be said about this. Let me just say this. We are not meant to live eternally as spirits. All right? God made us physical. I like the physical body, right? Don't you? I mean, I don't want to be floating around the room as some kind of spirit. I want to be able to, you know, 
grab a hamburger and eat it. Physical. So when we die, our spirits are with the Lord. But that's not our eternal state. God is going to resurrect our bodies, but thankfully, not like they are now. Amen? Those of us who are a little older, we really amen. But we're going to be in resurrected bodies in power and glory, but they're going to be physical bodies. They'll be able to eat a cheeseburger. I really believe that. And I'm hoping. But what Paul says is, the dead, those who died in Christ will be with the Lord, and then we who are alive when He comes back will be caught up with them to meet Jesus in the air. And from that point on, we are going to be with Jesus forever. Now, I want to address, there are some who believe, and I'm not going to get into controversy with this, guys. So, there are some who believe that the rapture described here will be a secret rapture of the church, that the rapture happens secretly, Christians are taken up, and then there's seven years of tribulation. Others, such as myself, believe that there's only one return of Jesus Christ, and this describes His glorious physical, visible return to earth and how believers will be caught up with him as part of his returning army as he conquers the Antichrist and his armies. And so I believe that's what Matthew is describing, actually what Jesus is describing in Matthew chapter 24, verse 30 and 31. Listen to this and overlay this with what we just read in 1 Thessalonians. Then, Jesus is talking about the end of the time, Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels out with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heaven to the other. Now, I believe that's, I believe there's just one return, not a secret return, and then seven years later, um, there's nothing secret about either of these accounts. Loud trumpet blast, the whole world sees it, pow. But whether we believe in a secret rapture and then seven years of tribulation, or that Jesus comes back at the end one time, we're caught up to be with him, Here's what we should all believe, every believer. Jesus is coming back soon. We should expect Jesus to come back soon. Paul says, encourage each other with these words. What are these words? He's coming back. Encourage each other with these words. But to be honest, 2,000 years later, how many generations of Christians have lived and died and Jesus hasn't returned? Do these words have the same punch they had back then for us? They expected to see Jesus in their lifetime, but they didn't, nor did the next generation, or the next, or the next, or the next, or the next. And here we are. 2,000 years later, how many generations later? And of all the generations of believers that have lived and will live, only one of those generations is going to be alive when Jesus actually does return. What are the odds that it's going to be us? What are the odds? 
that it's going to be us. Why should we expect to be the generation that is live when Jesus returns? That's the title of the message, Why We Should Expect Jesus to Return Soon. We should expect Jesus to return soon. Now, one reason is, I think, as I look at the world and what's going on and everything, I feel like there's a lot of things that are lining up really well with what Jesus predicts and prophesies and the, and the scriptures prophesy. There's a lot of things lining up really well. But that's not the primary reason I'm saying to us we should expect Jesus to return soon. There's another bigger reason why we should expect Jesus to return soon. Let's continue reading in chapter 5. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief, for you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. In 2004, some railway workers in Philadelphia found some motion detectors set up at different places in the railway yard. Now, this was two months after four trains were bombed in Madrid. And so the railway workers, when they found these motion detectors set up, were very concerned that this was some kind of a terroristic plot that was being set up. And so they called the FBI in. The FBI investigated, and what they found was less nefarious than terrorism. There was a worker, a railway worker, who was working two jobs, and so he wanted to sleep during his shift. So he set up the motion detectors to warn him when the supervisors were coming to check in on him. <laughs> Jesus says when he returns, he's going to come as a thief in the night. And there's no motion detectors we can set up, no, no motion sensors that we can set up to warn us and wake us before he returns. There's no, there's no like, okay, I, I know when this happens, then Jesus comes back. Till then, I can sleep. No, Paul says, you don't know, thief in the night. You're sleeping, thief comes, he didn't make an appointment. He's going to come unexpectedly. That's how Jesus is coming. So you stay awake. Don't sleep. Don't fall asleep, spiritually speaking. Stay awake. The world will be sleeping when Jesus returns. When he comes back, they're not going to expect him. They're not going to be looking for him. It will be night for them. And he will be a thief to them. I always thought that's a strange metaphor for our wonderful Savior to call himself a thief in the night. But there's two reasons he is. It's night 
because people are going to be, the spiritually sleeping are going to be sleep, sleeping spiritually. They're, they're not going to be looking for him. Nobody's going to be saying, man, I think Jesus is coming back. Furthest thing from their thoughts. And he's a thief because those whose hearts are bound in this world, our treasures are in this world, those who find all their treasure, all their hope, all their ambitions, all their goals, everything they love is in this world, will have everything they love taken away from them. Everything they love stolen from them. Because nothing in this world, no hope, nothing apart from Christ is going to last. And so that moment, those who hope in whatever this world can give, and that's all their hope, that's where their treasure is, right here in this world, will have all their treasure stolen from them, and they will have nothing left. But that is not for the believer. We aren't, Paul says, children of the night. We are children of the day. We are to stay awake. We are to be looking and watching and ready. And so here's why we should expect Jesus to return soon. Not because we know he's coming back soon. He could literally come back 500 years from now. We should be expecting Jesus to return soon because number one, we don't know when he's going to return. And number two, it's healthy for us to be looking for his return, expecting him to return just like Paul was just like the Thessalonians were and all the rest of the early church looking for his return. Don't let that fade in our hearts. We should be looking and expecting Jesus to return right here, right now. And I want to share just a couple of points. Actually, I want to add one. The biggest one I forgot to put in the notes. Can you believe it? I'm going to start with that one. Because we should love Jesus. When someone you love isn't with you, I mean, obviously the Lord's with us in the Holy Spirit, but when you love someone, you love it when they come back. You miss them, and there's joy when you see them. We love Jesus. He is our love. He is our precious Savior. He is everything to us. And our hearts should long to see him come back. And as I said a few weeks ago, set everything right. But not just that. That we would be with him forever. So looking for Jesus and expecting him to return soon stirs up in our hearts an affection for Jesus. I want Jesus to return. Listen, we've got our goals, we've got our lives, we've got our families, we've got good things. We should enjoy those things. But always underneath all of that, bubbling underneath should be Jesus. He, I, I want to see you. I love you more than all of this. Because you're not going to take anything that's valuable away from me. You're just going to add to the value. So that's the first and biggest reason. But here's two other reasons. Expecting Jesus to return soon reminds us we are accountable. We are accountable. In, in several of Jesus' parables about his return, he finds the unfaithful think, you know what, there's a delay. I don't even think my master's coming back. And they start to do bad things. Why? Because they don't think they're going to be held accountable for them. So when Jesus returns in those parables, they're shocked and they are held accountable. Knowing we are accountable to God is a good thing. It's a good thing. 
living with the knowledge that we're going to answer to God one day, it helps us, it helps keep us honest. No matter how sincere we are as believers, no matter how mature we are as believers, we're all sinners still, right? Has anybody here become perfect? Raise your hand, because you should be preaching. We're still sinners. We are. We're sinners saved by grace. But when we think no one's looking, we start thinking we can get away with things. We get sloppy. We get careless. We start cutting corners. Maybe we even start doing things that are morally, ethically wrong and sinful. Sin loves darkness. It loves darkness. It loves the night. Not physical night, when we think nobody can see what we're doing. And our sin can make us think, I can get away with it, because no one sees it. No one knows it. I will never be accountable for this. Accountability shines a light on us, and sunlight is the best disinfectant. I didn't know this last week. Somebody just shared it with me at the end of the morning, but I looked into it a little bit since. Over the last two weeks, the Hillsong Network of Churches have been rocked, uh, taking a huge hit from a documentary expose that came out exposing several scandals that had been going on in Hillsong around, not just in the, the primary founding church, but in other Hillsong uh, churches as well. I don't know all the details. I don't need to know all the details, but... What I read is similar to so many other scandals within the church. And we've had, um, we've seen churches that we know walk through uh, some years ago, um, some scandals. And there's a common theme. And, and if you just read about scandals, and I, I, I know it's a dark topic, but so often there's a double scandal. There's the scandal of the wrongdoing. The, the person does wrong. And then there's the scandal, second scandal, of those who are tasked to hold that person accountable, not holding them accountable, and trying to hide it and keep it from the light. And that second scandal often is more damaging than the initial scandal. Things get shoved into the night, into the dark. And, and listen, it doesn't mean, I mean, it doesn't mean these are terrible, horrible people. How could they? I know how they could. I'm a sinner too. You're a sinner too. Just when, there's, when you think you can get away with something and the people that are supposed to hold you accountable don't hold you accountable because maybe you're too big to fail or whatever it is, scandal is like, that's a dangerous place to be. Accountability is a good thing for our lives. Accountability means we know we're going to answer for what we do. There's going to be light shined on what we do. If someone keeps the books for a company or for a church, they need to be held accountable for that. They're in part being holding the church or the company accountable, but then they also need to be held accountable. If no one examines it, if there's no room for an honest person, uh, for someone to look at it, even honest people can be tempted to do wrong in the dark when they think no one's looking. Accountability is a good thing. Accountability means we do things in the light so people can see. If you 
have, and I'm not trying to tell you how you should run your life in these things, but, but the principle of it is if you have a computer that's in the dark and, and you don't want anybody to be able to get on that computer, and not because you have top secret government files on there, but because there's stuff on there you don't want anybody to see, and so you, it's totally dark and it's totally, nobody goes on there, you've got a password that you know, the NSA couldn't break and, and all of that. That's trying to keep it in the dark. If you've got a phone you don't want anybody to know about or, or you don't want anybody to get the password, you don't want anybody seeing it, you know, then examine. Are you afraid of the light shining? That's not a good thing. Somebody should be able to sit down at your computer and you don't have to worry about what they're going to see or on your phone or whatever. Or, or whatever situation, look at your schedule, you know, whatever it is, because it's, you want it in the light. You don't want anything hidden that people are, you know, I'm hiding this. Once you start doing that, be concerned. That means something's not right. And something not right can turn into something really wrong. Accountability is a good thing. When we know Jesus could be coming back any moment, we know we're going to answer for what well, I'm going to answer for what I'm doing today. So will you. It's a good thing to know that we're going to be held accountable. And, uh, you know, someone might say, well, you know, I think over the generations of time, people, the church has begun to think that, well, that's what death is. Death is when you are held accountable. That's not how the early church looked at it. Yes, death is one way we stand before God. But the early church was constantly, we're going to, it's Jesus coming back, Jesus coming back, Jesus coming back. That's what they, that was the accountability they constantly believed in and looked for. And I think we should as well. Jesus, uh, Paul's encouraged us, live in such a way, if Jesus were come back this moment, you would not be ashamed. You would not be like, Jesus, can you just put this off a week or two? You would not be ashamed because we will give account on that day. Second thought about why expecting Jesus to return soon gives us, uh, actually third thought, um, is that it gives us, and I'm going to try to wrap in just life, like a good life. It, it gives us perspective, it gives us protection, and it gives us productive lives. Like it's good for our lives on so many levels to be living expecting Jesus to come back. Paul reminds us again in, uh, let me read just uh, chapter 5, beginning in verse 8. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, Encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. I love that Paul again reminds us of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. He connects Jesus' second coming with his first coming. We belong to the day. But we don't belong to the day because of something we did. We belong to the day because Christ has saved us. He has transferred us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. He did that by his work on the cross. 
and by his resurrection. Jesus did that. You're not saved because you're a great person and you're loving God and you're holy and you're all these things. No, you're saved because you had no power to save yourself, none. And Jesus Christ saved you by his grace. And all we add is faith, which is just looking to him to do it all. I love how Paul connects it. We are children of the day because he has transferred us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. We have, God has changed our destiny from wrath to mercy. He changed our destiny from depart from me to be with me forever. All of that through Jesus Christ and what he did. And what Paul is saying here is that is so powerful in our lives. It doesn't matter whether we live or we die. We are going to be with him forever either way. But then he connects it to our daily lives. And I love how consistently the Bible connects the coming of Jesus with our just living out our, our faith faithfully. No special, you know, sell your house, move into the mountains, all that kind of stuff. Just, just do what God's called you to do. Do it faithfully, and you're going to be ready for his return. He says to be awake and be sober. He's not talking about alcohol there. He's talking about perspective. He's talking about good judgment. He's talking about seeing life clearly, being serious about what God takes seriously. People who are living spiritually drunk, are they've lost perspective, they've lost their balance, they've lost judgment. Expecting Jesus to return helps us to have perspective on this life. It gives us protection, the breastplate, of faith and love. Faith, the breastplate of faith protects our hearts from the flaming arrows of doubt. When it seems like God is a million miles away, we believe he's with us. We have faith. Our hearts are shielded from doubt and hopelessness. And, and then we have love. The breastplate of love reminds us we are loved unconditionally by God. Therefore, we can love other people whether they love us or not. That's true freedom. When you can love somebody, whether they love you or not, whether they treat you well or not, whether they criticize you or not, or let you down or not, we can love because we're freed from, I, I love you because I need your love, to I love you because I'm loved by God, and I can love you. You see, the breastplate of love doesn't protect our hearts from getting hurt. It protects our hearts from getting hard, which is way more serious. And then be productive in each other's lives. Build and encourage each other, he says. Build and encourage each other. In chapters 3 and 4, what Dow's already covered, Paul encourages them to love one another over and over again. Love one another. All of us, brothers and sisters, are a work in progress. We're all a work in progress. But here's the thing. God wants us to be working on each other's lives. That's part of discipleship, that we are working in and on each other's lives. Not because we've, any of us are perfect, but because God's called us to, to be involved in each other's lives, to help us grow. I've got, uh, I've got a series brewing in my heart for May on discipleship that I'm going to tackle it like I never have tackled it before, or I'm going to fall on my face like I've never fallen on my face before, because I've got stuff in my heart about that. 
but it's, it's, it's basically, it's hammering in each other's lives, sanding each other's lives, cutting a little bit of this, a little bit of that, a little bit of refinishing in each other's lives. I need that from you, you need that from me. Build up and encourage, but that's the thing. We're not demolishing each other's lives, we're building up each other's lives. And I love what Paul does here, because he says, build up and encourage each other just as you're already doing. He's encouraging them about what he's encouraging them to do. He's like, you're doing it, do it more. I love that. He does that in chapter four earlier as well. He says, you love, and keep on loving. I love that. So let's learn a lesson from Paul. Don't ignore the good someone's doing when you try to encourage them to grow in that area. Don't, don't, don't lose sight of the good. Don't act like you're not doing anything, so do this. Paul says, no, you're doing it. Just keep doing it. Do it more. As we close this morning, there is expecting Jesus to return soon is so spiritually healthy for us. Our hearts are filled with longing and affection for him. It helps remind us we are accountable, and that's a good thing. And it gives us perspective, protection, and productive lives. Now, as I close this series this morning, are we in the last days, like the last days, when Jesus is going to split the sky and return while we are alive on this earth? I think there are reasons to think that's a very real possibility. But we don't know. We don't know. But one thing we know, Jesus is coming back soon. He really is. And we want to be ready for him when he does. We will stand before him. Whether we die first and go to be with him in the air, or whether we go to be with him in the air straight from this life. I love the fact that the Bible tells us history doesn't end on this dark, terrible note. The world is not going to end because a meteor hits it, because of some ice age, because the oceans flood the world, or the sunspots burn us up, or whatever other cataclysmic end. That's not how the end world, world ends. The world ends on the brightest possible note of hope. Jesus is coming back to make everything right as the king, who, the only king who can rule this thing correctly. What hope? We live in that hope every day. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Lord God, we just thank you so much for such a hope, Father, you've given us in Jesus. Lord, everything we have, we have because of Jesus, your son. And we look forward to him returning. And Lord, I, I confess, Lord, when I was a new believer, I looked more forward to it than I do now. But I pray you stir in our hearts a fresh expectation every day. This could be the day. This could be the day Jesus returns. Help us to live in that place that we might long for him, that we might know that we will answer and live accordingly by your grace and that we might live this life out in productive ways, being faithful to what you've given us to do. And we will give you all the praise and all the thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You guys have a great week. Listen, you're not leaving church now. You're just leaving this building. 
you are the church. So let's go and be the church in a world that desperately needs to see the hope and the love of Christ displayed in our lives. Amen? So now comes the work. God bless you. Have a great week.